I was telling the first service, and I'll tell you guys too, I guess. I watch a lot of YouTube. I watch a lot of YouTube because I get a lot of things out of YouTube. I was watching this one guy uh, just uh, the other day, just within the last week, uh, and he was pointing out a heresy that was in one of the contemporary songs that we sing, and none of the ones we've sung here. Brett does a really good job of checking out the theology before we ever sing it in here. But uh, it was one of the, it's coming from one of those churches that you would probably expect to have a little heresy coming out of. And, and he pointed it out, and he, and he said something that I thought was incredibly important to me, and, and I think it should be important to all of us. And that is, is that the, the songs that we sing should, should be as theologically correct as the sermons that we listen to. Because in reality, you do not want to just, you know, start to grab onto the things that just sound good. I mean, and, and that's what happens so often. Maybe it rhymes, and that, that really makes it, it fits in the song or whatever. And, and you really don't want to do that. And so what we find is, is that heresy is always around us. And, and I will say this, I don't believe heresy ever dies out either. Do you understand what I'm trying to say is, is that, is that when, even when we address the heresy, there's always somebody who's still going to embrace that heresy and going to hold on to that heresy and just keep on going with that heresy. And so when uh, I was looking at this, this message today, I, I said, when did heresy start? Well, the heresy started right from the very beginning. I mean, you have to understand, heresy was going along all the time. So I picked one. I just picked one out of the, out of the blue because it fit into the, the, uh, the message that I had today. And that was uh, one called Marcionism. Uh, Marcionism believed that the vengeful, angry God they found in the Hebrew Bible was an evil tyrant, separate from and inferior to the loving, forgiving God of the New Testament. And like many of their contemporaries, they perceived the world as a battleground between the forces of good and evil. This is what happens with this. Now realize that if you believe, as I've heard, I've even heard this from a Baptist pulpit somewhere, and where there's a, you know, basically there's a, uh, I, this is what one of them said. He says, there's a good dog and a bad dog, and it's one that you feed the most is one going to win. Uh, folks, that's called dualism. There is one God, only one God. Everything else is, is, is uh, periphery. I mean, I'm just saying to you, that's, that's really what it is. That's, that's, a, that's a different heresy than from, from Marcionism. Uh, you see, but what happened with Marcionism is that they believed that the God of the Old Testament was Satan. And you realize that. They thought the God of the Old Testament is Satan because he was vengeful and he's wrathful and he's all of those kinds of things. And the God of the New Testament was the one true God. And if you take that to any logical conclusion, that means the creator God was Satan. <laughs> Understand that. Now, they were saying that he was uh, inferior to the other God, but, uh, to our God, but it makes no sense. Uh, Marcionism, uh, it was proposed by a wealthy shipbuilder named Marcion who was the son of a bishop of Sinope. He proposed this heresy in 144 AD. Has it disappeared? Well, they, they, the church managed to wipe out all of his, you know, all of the things that he wrote. They, they, tore it, they, they destroyed it. I mean, just be upfront with you. This is what happened. But the responses to Marcionism is still around. And in fact is, is that you may still hear it. You may still hear of it. I heard of a, a form of Marcionism when I was in college. I mean, and, and they, would, they would say that there was this, there was this you know, the, the God of the Old Testament doesn't seem to be the God of the New Testament because he seems to be so vengeful. And, you know, and they would, they would speak, oh, but the God of the, of, the, of the New Testament, he's all love. He's no judgment. He's no wrath. And they don't even realize they also made him with no holiness. Because you realize that if you have a holy God, there's going to be some wrath when there is some unholiness that is going on. 
And so it, it may have seemed right for people to, to say, well, you know what? There's a, there's, there was a God here and there was a God here. And here's the other thing that he has. We need, to, we need to say that God didn't say, you know what? I think I'm going to try the Old Testament. We're going to see if we can get salvation out of the Old Testament. And then we're going to try the New Testament and see if we can get salvation out of the New Testament. That's not the way that it worked. You see, we must realize that God never changes. God absolutely never changes. You hear what I'm saying to you? See, what that means is, is that when you read the scriptures, you realize when you read the scriptures and you say, you know, when this happened in the Bible, then God did this. Let me hear this from me. And then you pray something and you see that what you're doing is very parallel. That is what is going on in the Bible. You can count on God acting in exactly the same way as he did before. He never changes. And in, even in those times when you've, you've seen where it says when God has relented or something, you realize what, you, you watch it. When people have repented, God has given them mercy. That's always been true. That's always been true. You look at the Old Testament, you look at the New Testament, you find the same thing there. God just doesn't change. In Hebrews 13, 8, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And what that means for us is that we can count on God being consistent in the way that he acts toward us and in those circumstances that are around us. Now, why should God's plan always remain the same? Give me, give you the, the reasons behind this. One, God is omniscient. It says in Psalm 147, 5, it says, Great is our God, is our Lord, and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. See, there's nobody wiser than God. God does not have to think of, you know, I didn't think of that before. That's not God. God doesn't say, you know what, I, I would, you know, after a while, I, I thought this out a little better. I think I, I'll do it a different way. That is not God. God not only knows everything, but he understands everything. And Richard Feynman, who was a physicist, in his autobiography, and it's uh, surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. Uh, he went down to, he's telling the story, when he went to uh, teach physics down in Brazil. And the, the students that he had, they had memorized the answers, but they didn't understand any of it. You understand what that's like? Being able to say, I know that the answer is B, but I don't know why it's B. I know the answer is, you know, is a quark for, or whatever it was in the physics world. And he said, but I don't even know why it's that. And he realized that's what has happened. Well, you see, God doesn't just know it. He also understands it as well. So there's no reason for God to come up with a different plan. Second thing is, God is holy. God is holy. Uh, Isaiah 6, 3, we're in the throne room of God, and it says, and it's talking about the angels, and they're calling out to each other. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When you use the holy, 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 you realize that means good, better, best. That means the absolute most that it could be. There's no one holier than him. When you use it like that. See, that is uh, how God acts. Understand, God doesn't, doesn't not change. He can't change either. Do you understand what I'm trying to say to you? He will not change. He cannot change. It's not going to be possible for him to change. Why? Because he would have to change who he is. And if he ever starts changing who he is... Uh, we're in trouble, folks, because you can't trust him anymore. Do you understand? If God ever reinvents himself, that's going to be a terrible time for us. 
And so he has to be exactly who he is. And he is holy. And every decision that he makes will be holy. Every time. So when he made the decision for salvation to be the way it is right now, he's made that decision because of his holiness. And, so, and God is omnipotent. Third thing. He, say, he says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? There's not anyone stronger than God that can make him change his mind or change what he's doing. He says, there's no power that can overcome God. There's nothing else in the universe that measures up to God. I say, even the power of the atom is no measure for God. No, even the power of the sun is no measure for God. Nothing can make God do something. You understand? Nothing. And so there's no reason for him to change that. Fourth thing is God is determined. And God doesn't say something and then say, oh, wait a minute, I changed my mind. Or, oh, no, I'm not going to do that, you know. It says in Ezekiel uh, chapter uh, 24, 14, it says, I am the Lord, I have spoken, it shall come to pass. I will do it, I will not go back, I will not spare, I will not relent. What he's saying here is, is that when God says I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. It says no matter how long it takes, no matter what it, what it takes. You see, determination gets things done and rationalization gets things to stop. You hear what I'm saying? Because you start rationalizing, oh, I don't really need that degree, you know, and so you stop going to school. You know, well, why did you start in the first place? If you weren't going to continue on, you needed to continue on with that. You understand what I'm trying to say? Uh, I, I, I don't really need to finish this project. You know, whatever that might be. It's going to start rationaliza- rationalization there. It's what happens with somebody. But when God does it, God is determined in this, and he will bring it to pass. So why aren't God's uh, uh, plans accomplished immediately? Well, here's the reason why behind that. God acts upon his plans without violating his principles. What I'm saying to you is, is that God will not wrench your will away from you. He'll not... St- Steal it from you. He'll not take it away from you. He will not force you into it. And when God says that something is going to happen, he doesn't take the will away from those people that are out there. He doesn't force anybody to be saved. You know, a lot of times I would say, oh God, if you just save people when they didn't even want it, that would be great. But in reality, you know what? A person convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. You know that, and I know that. That is really the case that is there. And so what has happened here is, is that so God, in the moving of what he does, see God calls and he knows who's going to respond. And God speaks and he knows who's going to listen. And God empowers and he knows who's going to act on his word. And when that comes together, that is when we see the fullness of time. In Galatians 4, 4 it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. You understand what has happened here? God had a plan. Jesus was going to be born. Why was he born a thousand years before? Because it wasn't the fullness of time. It had not all come around. God will not violate his principles on this. And so it is not strange. You know, some people have said, you know, this is a strange way to save the world. Understand, this was the only way to save the world. There was never another way. And so I get to my first Peter passage, which I wanted to get to today, which will um, say some more of this. First Peter chapter 1 verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, 
inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What has happened here is these Old Testament prophets told the story of salvation. They told the story as it was told to them. They knew that Jesus was coming. They didn't understand how he would come fully, but they were doing this research. They were looking after it. It says, the, you know, how were these uh, Old Testament saints saved? Well, there's a couple of things I need to talk to you about on this. One, the Old Testament prophets acted on what they knew. They said, what do we know? Now, the thing about it is, is that did they fully know Jesus? The answer is not like we know Jesus. But as much as they knew, they acted on that. The word of God came to them. They received his word and they acted on that word. In Hebrews 11, we've got the story of the hall of fame of faith. We have Abel who is lauded for his appropriate faith, for Enoch, for Noah, for Abraham. You know, they all acted. God's word came to them and and they, they did what they did. So God spoke to them and they acted. Their acting was a matter of faith. And it says in Hebrews eleven six, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. See, each of these, in one way or another, walked with God. They did what they did with as much as they knew. And see, the question isn't what they knew, but what did they do with what they knew? And that's still always our question, to us even. See, God makes promises. And God, you know, God makes a promise. And he doesn't always tie it up with a ribbon, you know. And say, so, you know, we, you say to God, God, what do you want me to do? I, I want, to, want you to do this. God speaks to you and you get this word from God. You know, when I went in the ministry, I, I've told you this many times. I went in the ministry. I said, okay, God. Or actually, when I became a Christian, I said, okay, God, I will become a Christian, but I will not go in the ministry. When I went in the ministry, you know what I said? God, I will go in the ministry, but I will not preach. And then I finally, I said, I, God said, uh, he said, I want you to preach. This is, years are passing through this. And I'm going, I'm, I said, okay, God, I'll preach, but I'll never go to Houston. You know what the first church I went to? You know, I've been telling God, I'll never go to Hawaii now. But anyway, he's said, doesn't work. Doesn't work that way, you know. No, the, the, the deal on this is, is that God doesn't always tie it up in a ribbon. He doesn't tie it up in a ribbon. And it amazes me, especially when I'm doing a wedding. I'm doing a wedding and, you know, the couple come down here and I look at those two young people and I say, they don't have a clue what they're doing. <laughs> and I said, eh, I'm not going to tell them either. Anyway, but the thing about it is, is that it's amazing to me that people will go into marriage not knowing what the next step is and they will not do what God wants them to. Now, I understand you believe that that spouse that you're marrying, that person's going to love you. And, and I understand that. But don't you realize that God loves you, too? You know, you should be able to trust him as much as you would trust this, this other person. So here's, here's the situation. God doesn't always give us all the details. And so in the Old Testament, the saints didn't know the details. So God saved them according to what they did know. Not that they knew everything about it. In Hebrews eleven thirteen, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. See, for them, they had not received that fullness of time just yet. 
But I can tell you that still God has not changed. They didn't know it all. And praise God, we don't need to know it all. Remember that Moses, when he was called out, what did he say? He questioned two things. He questioned who he didn't know. Who's going to tell me that I'm, who am I supposed to say has has sent uh, me to go back to uh, Egypt and lead these people out? And he questioned what he, he said, I can't do this. I can't do this. He couldn't see the success even though he had received God's word from him. And the reason is because he's looking at just what he can see. Right at this moment, he's looking at what he can see. I mean, it's, it, to me, it's like the story of David and Goliath. You know the story of David and Goliath? This old big old guy, he's out there, he's taunting the armies of Israel. He's jumping up around and, you know, and, and making fun of them and everything else. And, and Saul and all the army of Israel are saying, this, this guy's. if we go out there and hit him, he's, he's too big to hit. And David came up and said, he's too big to miss. You understand? There's a difference there. He said, so you've got to realize what is going on there. Moses couldn't see that he was capable, and yet there was no one like Moses. He took his baby steps, and he got to where he was needed to be and became a person of real faith. It says of Moses in Exodus thirty-three eleven, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. You think about that. That's a pretty astounding thing. So what did they do? The prophets researched all about the Messiah. They had a word from God that he's coming. And understand, if you want to have research, you need to have a consistent God. Do you understand what I'm saying? If the old um, scientist, the scientists not, not like they are today or like some of them are today, realized that God had made the universe and that God used patterns in his uh, uh, way of making the universe. And what they believed was if we can just discover God's pattern, we can understand the science behind all of this. That's the way that they did it. And so with, there wasn't a pattern. They could never even have had science doing all the research in the world. Wouldn't make any difference if it's this and this and this and this and this. It's changing all the time. Have you ever taken a car in and it won't do what it was doing for you? And you've got to tell mechan- the mechanic it's making this noise. And the mechanic says it's not making that noise. I don't know what's going wrong with it. And you're going, but it did before. You see, if it's not consistent, you can't figure out what the problem is with the car. And the reason is, is because they go to work on it and you don't know how many times I've replaced things that didn't need to be replaced because well, I thought, well, that has to be that thing. They had, and the mechanic thought that it had to be that thing. And when it's inconsistent, your research makes no sense. You've got to have consistency for the research to make sense. And so they, they begin to do the research. They begin to, to try to figure out who the Messiah is. Why did they need to do that? Because... There were going to be people who were going to be calling themselves the Messiah. They're going to say, hey, I'm the Messiah. Me, I, I named, I'll name three. There were, I can name 25, actually. But there was a guy named Thutis. He got a big um, following. Judah, uh, the Galilean, got a big following. There was an unnamed uh, Egyptian Jew who got a big following. But the true Messiah, Jesus, was recognized through his miracles and his message now, how did they know in order to, to do that? Well, remember when John the Baptist said, are you really the one, Jesus? He sent the message. He said, and what did Jesus say? He said in, in Luke chapter 7, verse 22. 
And he answered them and he said, Go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, cleansed, and the, uh, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Now how would that be the sign of the Messiah? Well, let's go back over to the Old Testament. What does it say? Isaiah 35, 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then, the, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. <laughs> they didn't get that out of just the New Testament and Jesus saying it. They got that out of the Old Testament with their Isaiah the prophet saying that. So it would not be unusual for there to be research that is done. We know that Jesus is coming back. There's plenty of people that are doing research on that. And there have been at least 25 big-time people who claim to be the Messiah. And you know how we know that they're none of them the Messiah? Well, one of the things is, how is Jesus going to come back to this earth? Is he going to just show up? He's coming. He's coming from the sky. In the same way it says in the way that he left, he's coming back. Not any of those people came back that way or came anywhere that way. And so what we have here is we have the research that indicates who the Messiah was going to be. And these Old Testament prophets wanted to know the time and the circumstance of the Messiah's coming. They searched. What does it say in the scripture? It says by the spirit of Christ that was, it says it is in them. And a lot of people want to say, What? It says the Spirit of Christ is in these Old Testament prophets. It says it right there in the scriptures. It says it right there. See, this stands of a, a statement of Christ before of his coming as Jesus. So the believers possess the Spirit of Christ. And these people were believers. Romans 8, 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you are a believer, you have the Spirit of Christ in you. If you are not a believer, you do not have the Spirit of Christ in you. So how are these Old Testament prophets saved, these people saved? The Old Testament prophets possessed the Spirit of Christ, even though they had not realized fully the message of the Messiah. And so what happens here is they acted on faith by what God had told them to do. See, you know, this is the story, folks. When you or God tells you something, you act by faith. It is counted to you as righteousness. It says when Abraham was told that he would be the father of multitudes... In Genesis 15, 6, he responded, and it said, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So let me say something very clearly to you. There is only one plan of salvation. Jesus, there is no other name by which we can be saved. There is not one other name by which we can be saved. That is established. When? Way back. Way back. And so the Spirit of Christ can be working in the hearts of people even before Christ came. That is also established. The Spirit of Christ was leading the prophets to discern the coming of the Lord. And they started to realize his sufferings and glory. Hosea would record in Hosea 6.2. After two days he will revive us and on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. 
Jesus himself said the sign that would of him would be the sign of Jonah who had been in the inside of the great fish for three days. See, I think the thing is, is that what we want to do is we want to take scripture and we want to apply it only to the minute that we're in at that moment. And what we don't realize is that the scripture has one meaning, but it has many applications. And that's the way that someday you'll be reading the scripture and you say, oh Lord, this is the same situation I'm in. You're going to do the same thing with me. And then so you're being, you're having it applied to you. But as long as we're in our IBM, our itty-bitty minds, as long as we have our itty-bitty minds working, we simply want to keep things exactly like they are within the the world that we're in right now. It's sort of like when Henry Ford was asked about uh, customer input, and he replied, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said they wanted faster horses. That's what it would have been. That's all they could think of at that time. But the, the problem isn't with the scriptures. There's problems within ourselves to see beyond our present day. Faith is acting on what we believe. So they searched intently in First uh, Peter chapter 1 verse 10. And they, they continually searched in verse 11. And yet they would not see it for themselves. Hebrews eleven thirty nine says, And all these, though commended... Uh, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. They did not see. They did not see as we have seen. They did not know as we have known. And said, and it is by the message that we preach today that they are saved. Jesus, there is no other name under heaven by which a person can be saved. And it's not just simply our message. It's a message that started way back. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. God is cursing Satan for what he has done with Adam and Eve. And what does he say? He says, and by the seed of your offspring, of the woman's offspring, he says, he will crush your head, Satan. That's the story that is there. That's all the way back in Genesis 3, 15. So the message is this. Not what do we know, but what do we do with what we know? That was the story of the Old Testament. What do you do with what you know? You don't know it all. I don't know it all. None of us know it all. But the Old Testament prophets acted on what they knew. And they... And so we sometimes look at God's plans and doubt and say, well, did God change his plans? And, you know, we look at our circumstances sometimes and we say, you know what? God must be changing his plans. He did not change his plans. So I want to give you a scripture, not because I'm going to preach on it right now, but so that you can think about this and say, I don't care what my circumstances are. Is this scripture true? And should I act on this scripture? Jeremiah 29 11 says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. What are you going to do with that? It's not what you know. It's what are you going to do with what you know. Pray with me, please.